You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Before James Buchanan's presidency had even begun, there were problems. Deadly problems. His secretary, two congressmen, and the governor of Mississippi were dead. And he was, along with scores of others, unable to work for some days. There was no invading army or physical altercation. No one knew what the culprit was. People who had stayed in the hotel, the Washington National Hotel, with his inaugural party, grew ill. Those who hadn't stayed in the hotel did not get sick. So even in the 19th century, it wasn't hard to see that whatever the problem was, it had something to do with that hotel. The press speculation was immense. Was he poisoned? After all, James Buchanan had won the presidential election against the upstart Republican anti-slavery party and the know-nothing anti-immigrant party. His own party was split, with barn burners against slavery and fire eaters wanting to defend slavery at all costs. Could someone have wanted to take the president out? Or was he accidentally poisoned? Did rat poison that were supposed to be meant for the rats get into the water supply? Or was it, as so many thought then, bad vapors? Oh, a disgruntled National Hotel employee said to a newspaper, that darn hotel, everyone there was always getting sick. The 19th century science was right about the source. It was the hotel, it was the drinking water supply in the hotel, but they had no idea, no conception of bacteria, tiny microorganisms in the water from contaminated pipes. And James Buchanan, president, himself survived and went into the White House, as did his niece, Harriet Lane, who, little queen of democracy as she was called, would be the toast of her favorite relative Uncle Jim's White House and act as first lady to this bachelor president. The nation's only bachelor president for his entire term. And James Buchanan, old buck, as he was called, experienced cabinet member, member of Congress, world player, diplomat, dafty political survivor, was sending a clear 19th century message of, I got this. A cartoon at the time shows James Buchanan sitting at his garden in his home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, of Wheatland, victorious, victorious. 
having defeated the New York editors, Greeley among them, who with money and words had tried to get the explorer James Fremont elected as president. And now we're nattering at him, and he refusing from his garden gate. He also defeated the anti-immigrant know-nothings pictured in the cartoon, also shuddering behind a wall, Millard Fillmore, great Whig and former president, having wasted his career on a third party that would win only one state. James Buchanan was victorious. And, you know, strangely enough, for how we know him, James Buchanan got the one thing that anybody in a job really wants. The person before him was a failure. Franklin Pierce. We talked about him in an episode. So all Buchanan has to do, right, is pick up the pieces. Yet it is James Buchanan and not Franklin Pierce who routinely ends up in being the worst president ever on almost every list that there's been in history and that you see now. James Buchanan, mostly because of what occurred in his last few months in office. Jason Guilford on Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. Can you address the reason that James Buchanan is commonly thought of as the worst president ever? The reasoning I've heard is that it's because the Civil War started on his watch. While technically true, it doesn't seem fair. What could Buchanan have done to avert the Civil War? Given that the Republicans were formed as an abolitionist party and they had just won their first presidential election, and that the South viewed slavery as a foundational social system, the Civil War seems like it was not realistically preventable. Well, I think the medium is the message here. A top 45 list means someone must be last. And so while there's good arguments for everyone who's down at the bottom to not be absolute last, and someone has to take the place once you've structured the list as a ranking of presidents. And we'll get into the methodologies behind that and the questions behind whether ranking is even viable. So since he came before Lincoln and was involved in an event that moderns can grasp, the Civil War, since his party didn't give him a second chance at a second term, um... Yeah, it just goes to Buchanan. I don't like rankings. Uh, rankings are one-dimensional. There's a lot of things that go into a presidency. I'm going to agree with a scholar we're going to talk about later who, who talks about how you have to really look contextually in these presidents and their times, but you also have to look multidimensionally. So I'll give you a quick one. Who was most effective in a crisis to the United States? Well, Buchanan's probably going to come in worse at that dimension. Let's say, though, you're a person who supports a robust immigration policy, think that people who arrive here should be citizens as quickly as possible. Let's say that's your policy. And I know that's a, that's a debated issue right now. Let's say that's your policy. James Buchanan, oddly enough, is probably going to rise to number two, three, four, or five. He's going to be up there along with Abraham Lincoln on a list like that. Franklin Roosevelt probably won't be that high. So... It depends on what question you're asking and how you're ranking them. That being said, overall, it appears that James Buchanan as last is just a tough one to argue with. There's one thing more to say about all this. We don't have to speculate about what James Buchanan thought, because 
We have his own account. We have his own words. Those words were mostly etched in James Buchanan's home in Wheatland, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It stands today, and it is visited. It's actually, for a president that shows up routinely on the worst of so many lists, it's actually um, visited quite often by many tourists. Now, perhaps because he's Pennsylvania's only true president, um, perhaps because uh, it's along with other tourist stops, you know, being in Lancaster near the Amish country and not that far from Gettysburg and all of that, Eisenhower's farm, you know, that you can kind of combine and see James Buchanan's Wheatland along with other things. The tour guys insist they can't say whether the zinc tub in the house was used by President Buchanan or not. This zinc tub uses natural rainwater collected in a basin from the roof, and a pipe leads down. When it rains, you collect water, and then you can use it for showers and baths when there is no running water available. James Buchanan was born near this house in a log cabin. There's a statue of him there. He's the last president that was born in the 1700s, born in 1791. Graduates from Dickinson College, moves to Lancaster where he studies law. When you hear about the defense of Baltimore in the War of 1812, know that he was one of those soldiers fighting in defense of that city during that war. And after a brief but successful practice, got into politics. In the 1820s, he served Pennsylvania in the legislature. In the 1830s and 1840s, he was elected five times to the U.S. House of Representatives and twice to the Senate. He was a winner in a popular vote, the legislative vote, and he was popular in his district. He was defeated only once in 11 attempts for legislative office. He made Secretary of State under President James Polk, which was a good uh, graduation for his career, though, as the founder of an important party in a political state, an important Northern Democrat, he wanted the presidency for himself. With Polk, he saw the spectacular expansion of the nation after the Mexican-American War. And in 1852, as many Secretary of States had, he thought he'd get the nomination. But no, that was given to Franklin Pierce. And Buchanan accepted the position of minister to Great Britain. There, he didn't, he had a small role. I mean, we've talked about this in our podcast on Franklin Pierce, where there was a document that made everyone mad in Europe because the United States was essentially saying that uh, we just had to take Cuba, um, whatever Spain, France, and England thought. Well, Buchanan was one of those diplomats that was at that meeting and was somewhat embarrassed by the incident. But other than that, being minister to Great Britain kept him out of a lot of thorny political issues that were going on during Pierce's term, the bleeding Kansas issues and battles in the U.S. Congress. Had he been a House member, had he been a senator, it's unlikely that James Buchanan could have been the party's nominee in 1856. Something else of note that's been picked up in, in modern times is he was the first bachelor. He had a very good relationship with William Rufus King, 
who was vice president under Franklin Pierce. Only, unfortunately, as it would turn out, for one month. As he died of tuberculosis. So, because of the relationship they had, I, I talked about the, um, because of the relations they have, it's even been stated that perhaps James Buchanan's the first gay president. Um, there's been 44 individuals who have been president. That's certainly possible. I also think, though, you have to balance it with social norms of the 1850s, the way, and I discussed this in further detail in a vice president's podcast when I talked about William King. If you're not listening to the Vice President's Podcast, go subscribe, Vice Presidents of the United States. This is my part where I discuss the uh, relationship between Buchanan and King. Vice presidents, of course, are, are doomed to history. And it's very often the case that we only know one thing about them. With the case of William R. King, it might be that he died in office after only 45 days. Or that he was sworn in in another country and that he really didn't get to the Senate building at all to conduct any of his duties, nor the White House to visit with the president or anything like that during the time that he was vice president. But if anyone knows anything in history about him, it's most likely the speculations regarding King and his relationship with the future president, James Buchanan of Pennsylvania. After 1834, King and Buchanan were both mostly living in the District of Columbia. Then when you were sent as a senator, you know, you mostly stayed in the district and represented your state. King and Buchanan both lifelong bachelors, became known as the Siamese twins. I mean, it was, they were so close that in 1844, some suggested a Buchanan King ticket, but instead that ended up going to Polk and Dallas. Here's what Professor Paul F. Bowler, the author of Presidential Campaigns from George Washington to George W. Bush, a nice book, he said that, uh, a lifelong bachelor, King lived for 15 years in the home of future U.S. President James Buchanan while the two served in the Senate in various positions. Uh, Buchanan, also a lifelong bachelor, is believed by some historians to be the nation's first gay president. Here's what Bowler said. They certainly didn't have the word gay back then. Insiders at the time speculated over whether King and Buchanan's well-known close friendship had evolved into something romantic. Bowler continues, I don't think the word homosexual was used either. So they sort of used the term a little feminine and all of that. Aaron Brown, who became U.S. Postmaster General while Buchanan was president, referred to King as Buchanan's wife. In Gene Baker's Buchanan biography, she reports that King and Buchanan's nieces reportedly destroyed their uncle's correspondence with each other, fueling speculation that the two men were in a relationship that their families wanted to conceal. In one letter that survived, Buchanan expressed sadness over King's departure when he left to become the U.S. envoy to France. I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a wooing to several gentlemen, Buchanan writes, but have not succeeded with any one of them. 
Well, that would seem to settle the matter there, right, except we're reading this with modern terms. Here's what David Durham, a University of Alabama professor of law and history, said. It remains an open question whether King was gay. I don't think anyone can prove it one way or the other, Durham said. A lot of speculation comes from misinterpreting, I think, 19th century lifestyles where men commonly slept in the same bed and thought nothing of it, and where the kind of terms of affection used in letters and correspondence between males. In our society, it's like, hmm, that's very interesting. But they thought of it nothing, and it didn't mean there was some kind of romantic attachment. That's not to say that there wasn't. Buchanan was an insider politician. He relied on his cabinet. And they weren't just people that he associated with. They were also his good friends. You know, William Floyd, the Secretary of War, Jeremiah Black, who is is his attorney general, and his secretary of the interior, Jacob Thompson. Buchanan's favorite of them all, Secretary of the Treasury Hal Cobb of Georgia, had once owned over 1,000 slaves. It wasn't really a choice of cabinet that represented the Democratic Party that he came from, the National Democratic Party. You know, it wasn't a team of rivals. It wasn't somebody to disagree with. It was somebody who would both be his cabinet. And by the way, cabinets were different at this time. One of the things that's that's interesting that is that the cabinet is going to meet almost every day in the Buchanan White House. And it's really going to be an integral part of his administration versus just the president kind of in a room deciding what to do. And in the early days of the Lincoln administration, the very early days when Edwin Stanton who is kind of a figure that bridges the two presidents, Buchanan and Lincoln, because he's attorney general under Buchanan, and he becomes secretary of war later under Lincoln. But during the period when Lincoln's just a new president, and Stanton's still kind of writing and corresponding with former president Buchanan, who's his friend, who he'd worked for, he's going to say, there aren't really many cabinet meetings. Can you believe this? You know, that the idea that a president would just be making decisions from an office as the executive, you know, is, is, is foreign to both men. Well, that's not the way Buchanan operated. So this cabinet is integral. It's a part of assessing the people. And they're integral as friends as well. Be able to go get dinner after, after a long day of work. Okay, so this group, not really very representative of the nation. And one Westerner on the entire cabinet, when the population of the nation is moving west, is going to determine the fate of the nation. kind of quasi-celebrity of Buchanan's term in 1858 was a hotel porter in St. Louis. People would actually come to the hotel to see him. Um, Pretty interesting thing for someone of that job. His name was Dred Scott. And by the time of 1858, he had won his freedom. He wouldn't live much longer, sadly. But he had also attracted a lot of fame. Dred Scott, though, should not have become a famous name. He was born a slave in Virginia, son to a slave who moved out west. And he had many owners, so many that in subsequent court cases it would be difficult to trace. And owners were leasing him out to other people to do work. So he was working on many assignments for many people. 
But he, like so many others, did not collect money for his work because of the color of his skin, because of his status in society. When his first owner, Peter Blow, fell on hard times, he sold him to an army sergeant, Emerson. And Emerson was transferred to Illinois and to Wisconsin. These were free states. There was no slavery there. The practice of slavery in Wisconsin was prohibited by law. So when eventually, and he he also got married there to Harriet Scott. So when he eventually, uh, so when he eventually returned to St. Louis, he sued for his freedom, arguing as had actually been done successfully in many cases in St. Louis and Louisiana and various courts that once someone had been brought to a free state that they could no longer be held in slavery. But those cases were determined in the 1840s, and now it was the 1850s, and new philosophies had gripped the nation, and there were new worries about the institution of slavery disappearing. These cases became more spotlight, and the Missouri Supreme Court in 1850 rules against him. Regardless of where he moved or where he was moved, he's a slave. He has no status in society and can't sue for his freedom. In that case, he's got an interesting supporter, Charlotte Blow, who is daughter of his uh, now-deceased first original owner, Peter Blow. She is determinately against slavery, and her and her brother, who's going to end up being a Republican anti-slavery congressman from Missouri, do what they can to help out the Scott case. And many people will. He attracts legal attention. Legal scholars will come. Eventually, the cases are consolidated into this one case, Dred Scott versus Sanford. Sanford, who has a very loose connection to um, Dred Scott, really, through his sister, is backed by significant um, slave family, slave-owning family in Louisiana who are, you know, not unlike today, powerful groups who are funding the cases and then powerful and well-known attorneys who are on both sides of the case. And it goes before the Supreme Court. In that case, Roger Taney concludes that the court had no jurisdiction over Dred Scott's case because he was not a citizen. But he goes further, and he strikes down the Missouri Compromise of unconstitutional. The compromise says that anything north of Missouri can be, will be a free state. There can be no slavery there. Tenney wrote that the compromise's legal provisions would free slaves who were living north, 36 degree north latitude in the Western Territory. However, in the court's judgment, this would constitute the government taking slave owners' property. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. 
Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you. And what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. There are two dissents, just as John McLean says there is no basis for the claim that blacks could not be citizens. Black men could vote in five of the 13 states at the time of the ratification of the Constitution. They were citizens not only of their states, but of the United States. Tanny's opinion, John McLean wrote, was more a matter of taste than law. No force of the United States, no force of a democracy can turn someone from freedom to anything else. Justice Benjamin Robbins Curtis, in a dissent, says that none of the authors of the Constitution ever objected on constitutional grounds to the United States Congress when they adopted anti-slavery provisions in the Northwest Ordinance, which determined what was to happen with the territories granted by states in New England. Why should Chief Justice Taney now assert such a problem with it? But for James Buchanan, within a few days of taking over, he has what he feels is his first political victory in the case of Dred Scott. A Southerner can feel safe in bringing a person who is his property anywhere in the United States he wants and not lose that person's status. Buchanan endorses the decision and he pledges to enforce it. It's later discovered after his presidency that he actually did more. He tries to influence a justice for even a broader decision barring any attempt to end slavery in any territory of the United States. Taney's decision only blocked Congress from doing that. He is president, and he writes a letter to a justice friend. He interferes with the Supreme Court, and he does it willingly. In his mind, he's solving a great national problem. To him, it is a cure for all the discord that led to the violence in Kansas. Just let Southerners know they can feel safe in taking their property and feel safe And that will solve the union problem. This was Old Buck, the insider politics guy, fixing the problem. He was, in his view of the problem, not working for anything in his own interest. He didn't own slaves. His house in Wheatland was in a state that had passed an Emancipation Act during the Revolutionary War. Pennsylvania children who were born to slave mothers were free if they were born after 1780. It was a gradual Emancipation Act. It was named such. But it eliminated most slavery in Pennsylvania by 1810 and all of it by the 1840s. So Buchanan didn't have the problem himself. He was, in his view, seeking to help a part of the country that represented a smaller part of the country. 
that someone from the larger part of the country had to look out for to keep the union together. It's interesting to talk about Buchanan because of his place in presidential rankings. It was also interesting to look a bit about the history of those rankings, which really starts with Arthur Schlesinger, 1948, and how they've affected people's perceptions of presidents. Among the things that we talked about in different methodologies that are going to include whether it's a scholar ranking a person or whether it is the public or it's an economic ranking system, the the economics, uh, the economic situation during a president's presidency is going to determine that rank. And with all the discussion about what's going to happen in the last months of his presidency, it's also forgotten sometimes that there was in a large panic in 1857, the first year of his term. And that couldn't have made for a very good presidency. Now, I talked about that. It's really on a podcast from 2009 on American panics. And I'll just play that for you now. 20 years after the disaster that ruined the man from old Kinderhook and his political chances, America was in expansive mood again. Railroads were bringing settlers farther and farther west. Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, the states that had made up the West at the time of the 1819 crash were now established states. The frontier was in Kansas and Nebraska. Railroads were starting at a fever pace, stirred by investor money and free-loaning banks. Land in faraway Omaha, Nebraska that went for $500 a lot now sold for 5000 the amount of banks tripled between 1850 and 1857, pattern that we saw in the previous crashes. In May 1857, some New England textile mills reported that they had to shut down their looms. There was just a little less demand. Shipping was reduced, and shippers were selling their services for less and less. The Bank of France demanded that the Bank of England pay its loans in gold. They did this by selling their American stocks. The Ohio Trust Company, one of the major firms in New York, went under in August of 1857. It was followed by the Bank of Pennsylvania. Many banks in New York and New England had runs on them. Almost every store in New York City has placards announcing great sacrifice, vast reduction in prices, sales at less than cost, wrote the man who would future become in the future would become mayor of New York, George Templeton Strong. Charles Francis Adams would marvel at how the fifty seven collapse had been even worse than the one twenty years before, ruining Boston's top families. Beacon Street, those who would weld a great influence over our state in the last thirty years, they will now welcome a new set of occupants. A former military officer would pawn his gold watch in order to get Christmas presents for his kid. His name was Ulysses S. Grant. In Wisconsin, Carl Schultz, a Republican leader, would note how barter was being used for most transactions there. Jefferson Davis, a senator from Mississippi now, blamed the extravagance of New York and its speculation in railroads and banks. President Buchanan would see little solution at the national level. No one had thought of anything like national relief or a new deal. 
The Washington-era newspaper called ideas of such work programs or relief European ideas with a flavor of communism. All Buchanan insisted on was that using hard money instead of paper money would solve the crisis. Eventually, by the end of 1858, the panic had subsided and the nation focused on the conflict that would lead to the Civil War. Crisis had some degree of influence on that as Southerners sought to expand into new territories to restore losses. The settlers called their new town Bald Eagle because so many bald eagles nested along the Kansas River. It was Wyandotte Indian land, claim, but the settlers built on it anyway in 1854. And in 1855, they renamed the town after the territorial chief justice, Samuel Lecompte. It was the exact vision that those who had initially settled in the Kansas Territory had for Kansas. He was a prominent pro-slavery official. Still today, the Territorial Museum is available in the town of Lecompton, Kansas, and there are walking tours of town and lectures featuring men in black suits and big top hats. But in 1857, a constitution was framed there that tended to support slaveholding in Kansas. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 opened up those two states to slavery or freedom, prohibition of slavery, depending on what the settlers would decide. And it was a political maneuver because it was figured that they'd be giving up one free state in Nebraska, that settlers from Iowa already a free state, which has moved down to Nebraska and influence that territory. But that Kansas, where the available population that would settle this new state was mostly going to be from Missouri, slave state, that they could settle there and create a new slave state in the Union. These plans were foiled by rapid mobilization movements, funded movements to move to Kansas with um, by New Englanders with anti-slavery views. And pretty soon, the population of Kansas was majority anti- there was a um, majority in Kansas for it becoming a free state. But very often, the elections weren't held properly. The officials in Kansas were held pro-slavery views, uh, did not accept votes from areas like Lawrence, where there was a rapid uh, population of uh, new New Englanders moving in. And the Lecompton Constitution reflected that. There's questions about it. Eventually, a Kansas legislature was going to be elected in 1858. Majority anti-slavery rejects this Lecompton Constitution. But President Buchanan decides to accept it. And he submits it to Congress. In doing so, he triggers a fight with Senator Stephen Douglas. Now, Stephen Douglas now is being called to the carpet. If the people in Kansas don't want this constitution, how can the president enforce it? So he says he will go toe-to-toe with Buchanan on it, and there's open warfare in the Northern Democratic Party between the two. On one hand, Douglas is saying, I made Buchanan by stepping aside in 1856, and I will ruin him. 
On the other hand, Buchanan is not only taking out anyone that Douglas put into federal offices as a result of patronage, but he's also running a National Democratic Party to run against Senator Douglas. And that's going to be a factor, actually, in his um, series of debates and his um, his run for the Senate in 1858 against Abraham Lincoln, because it's actually a three-way race, so to speak. There's the Buchanan Democrats, not huge in Illinois, but enough to drain votes. Then there's Lincoln Republicans and Senate Douglas's Democrats. But Douglas is going to, you know, after LeCompton, any chance of Buchanan getting a second term or even getting nominated by a national Democratic Party for a second term is out of the question. February 27th, 1860. Abraham Lincoln, who had become famous because of his debates with Senator Stephen Douglas, delivers his famous Cooper Union Address in New York City. Lincoln asks, who are the fathers that framed our Constitution? I suppose the 39 who signed the original instrument. What is the question which, according to the text, those fathers understood just as well and even better than we do now? It is this. Does the proper division of local from federal authority or anything in the Constitution forbid our federal government to control as to slavery in our federal territories. Upon this, Senator Douglas holds the affirmative and Republicans the negative. Let us inquire whether these 39, the men who signed the Constitution, ever acted upon this question and how they did. In 1784, three years before the Constitution, the United States then owning the Northwest Territory and no other, the Congress of the Confederation had before them the question of prohibiting slavery in that territory, and four of the 39 who afterwards framed the Constitution voted on that question. Of these, Roger Sherman, Thomas Mifflin, and Hugh Williamson voted for the prohibition, thus showing that in their understanding, no line dividing local from federal authority nor everything else properly forbade the federal government to control as to slavery in the federal territory. In 1789, the first Congress which sat under the Constitution, the bill was reported by one of the 39, Thomas Fitzsimmons, then a member of the House of Representatives. It went through all its stages without word of opposition and finally passed both branches without yeas and nays. In this Congress, there were 16 of the 39. Again, George Washington, another of the 39, was then President of the United States and signed the bill thus completing its validity as law. So Lincoln goes through using history to beat up the politics of 1859. March 1860, the Virginia House of Delegates overwhelmingly rejects a proposal by South Carolina to organize a convention of Southern states. Same month, Republican-controlled House of Representatives approves the formation of a committee to investigate alleged corruption and malfeasance in the Buchanan administration. President criticizes the investigation as a partisan plot to besmirch his personal and official integrity. April 1860, 50 Southern delegates to the Democratic National Convention 
storm out of Institution Hall in Charleston, South Carolina, to protest their party's unwillingness to endorse a federal code protecting slavery in the territories. Now, I talked about the atmosphere in Charleston, South Carolina, in an interview that we did in 2017 with Paul Starobin. I'll play a bit of that. Uh, the radicals in Charleston, uh, let's, let's talk about Rhett Jr., the editor of the Mercury, the son of Rhett Sr., uh, very much had it in his mind that this convention was an opportunity to break up the party and therefore uh, ensure the victory of a Republican, you know, by definition, anti-slavery president, and, you know, bring on the confrontation uh, that he, I think in some sense, they lost their faculty of reason, which is what um, one of the few, you know, at least publicly declared unionists in Charleston, uh, James Lewis Pettigrew, felt at the time. I mean, he would write that to his friends in the North, that essentially people have gone crazy. May 1860, a newly formed Constitution Union Party appears a convention in Baltimore. John Bell becomes the party's presidential nominee. May 1860, Abraham Lincoln becomes the presidential candidate of the Republican Party. June 1860, the Democratic National Convention reconvenes in Baltimore and nominates Douglas. Anti-Douglas delegates from Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and other states withdraw from the meeting. June 1860, President James Buchanan vetoes a homestead bill which calls for the distribution of 160 acres of government land to each citizen willing to improve it. July 1860, New York City Mayor Fernando Wood, desperate to defeat Abraham Lincoln, advises the Democrats to run John Breckinridge unopposed in southern states and Stephen Douglas unopposed in northern ones. August 1860, from the steps of Norfolk City Hall, presidential candidate Stephen Douglas tells a crowd of 7,000 Virginians that he believes Lincoln's election would not be a just cause for secession. September 1860, presidential candidate John Beckenridge tells a crowd in Lexington, Kentucky, the Democratic rival Stephen Douglas espouses principles that are repugnant alike to reason and the Constitution. October 5th, 1860. Massive, wide-awake torchlight parades take place in New York City. Young Republicans who staged theatrical nighttime rallies show their support for the Lincoln candidacy. November 6, 1860. Americans go to the polls and elect Abraham Lincoln as the 16th President of the United States. He receives... 1,866,452 popular votes and 180 electoral votes from 17 of the 33 states. Three days later, James Buchanan convenes a cabinet meeting to discuss the national crisis that has been unleashed in the wake of Lincoln's election. His advisors are split. Buchanan proposes a convention of the states with the object of hammering out a compromise. His Secretary of State, Lewis Cass, argues the Union should be preserved at all costs. His Treasury Secretary, Howell Cobb, believes secession is legal and necessary. Secretary of the Interior, Jacob Thompson, agrees with Cobb and says any show of force by the U.S. government 
will force his native Mississippi out of the Union. Secretary of War John Floyd opposes secession because he believes it's unnecessary. November 10th, South Carolina Senators James Chestnut and James Hammond resign their seats. On the 13th, the South Carolina legislature authorizes the raising of 10,000 men for the state's defense. November 14th, Alexander Stevens, the future vice president of the Confederacy, addresses the Georgia legislature and speaks out against secession. November 23rd, Major Robert Anderson issues a report from Charleston, which identifies Fort Sumter as the key to the defense of the city's harbor. He urges secession is a fait accompli. December 4th, President Buchanan sends his State of the Union message to Congress, which attempts to appease both Northerners and Southerners. He views secession as a consequence of the intemperate interference of the Northern people with the question of slavery and urges the North to respect the sovereignty and rights of the southern states. But he also condemns secession and signals his intent to defend any federal forts in the South that come under attack. Jefferson Davis, who has been shown parts of the speech beforehand, doesn't like the speech, nor do Northerners. On December 8th, Hal Cobb resigns his post. December 10th, Buchanan holds a meeting with South Carolina congressmen and promise that their forces will not attack U.S. forts before the issue of secession is debated. December 12th, Secretary of State Lewis Cass resigns over James Buchanan's failure to reinforce the federal fort in Charleston. December 13th, 23 House members and 7 senators from the South make a public announcement calling for the creation of a confederacy. December 17th, South Carolina begins its secession convention. December 20th, the vote is 169 to 0 to leave the Union. December 26th, Major Robert Anderson moves his small force from Fort Moultrie to Fort Sumner. He believes the former location will soon be attacked and that the change of location is necessary to prevent the effusion of blood. South Carolinians are outraged. Secretary of War John B. Floyd resigns over Buchanan's decision not to overrule the troop transfer. Not to send Anderson back to Fort Moultrie. He's also under investigation. December 30th, South Carolinian's seat seized the federal arsenal at Charleston making Fort Sumner the last piece of federal property in the state controlled by the United States government. January 8th, President Buchanan sends a special message to Congress with endorses a plan by John Crittenden, Senator from Kentucky, and his proposal to resurrect the old Missouri Compromise line. He also places the onus of responsibility for solving the crisis on the legislative branch. His Secretary of the Interior, Jacob Thompson, resigns. January 9th, Mississippi secedes from the Union. January 10th, Florida secedes from the Union. January 11th, Alabama secedes from the Union. January 16th, Crittenden's Compromise is defeated in the Senate. January 19th, Georgia secedes from the Union. January 21st, Senators from Florida, Alabama, Mississippi bid farewell. Among them, 
Senator Jefferson Davis. January 26, Louisiana secedes from the Union. January 29th, Kansas is now admitted to the Union without slavery. February 1st, Texas secedes. February 4th, the Convention of Secedist States opens in Montgomery. A peace convention called by Virginia gets underway in Washington. Heading the meeting is former President John Tyler. February 8th, delegates in Montgomery adopt a provisional constitution for the Confederate States of America. February 9th, 1861, Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens are elected provisional president and vice president of the Confederacy, respectively. February 23rd, Abraham Lincoln arrives in Washington on a special train at the behest of his security team. The president-elect's clandestine journey is lampooned by a number of newspaper cartoonists who inflate wild rumors that he was disguised as a Scotsman. February 27th, the Peace Convention proposes six constitutional amendments to Congress most relate to the impasse over slavery. None pass. February 28th, the House passes a measure supported by President-elect Lincoln, which prohibits the federal government from interfering with slavery in the states where it exists. March 1st, P.T. Beauregard is appointed as commander of Southern forces guarding Charleston. March 4th, Abraham Lincoln is inaugurated as President of the United States. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So I think it's important to talk about John Floyd in the context of James Buchanan from Virginia. And in 1849, Floyd was elected governor of Virginia. He was very active in Democratic Party politics, and he's a presidential elector for James Buchanan in 1856. Buchanan taps him to be secretary of war. 
But he and his nephew, or his wife's nephew, Godard Bailey, are implicated in a scandal. Here's how American Heritage Magazine describes it. For two years, he had been sponsoring financial irregularities that could not much longer be hidden. In 1858, he started playing Santa Claus to the firm of Russell, Majors, and Waddle, a transportation company uh, holding government contracts to deliver supplies by horse and wagon to army posts on the western frontier. When William Russell, the Vermont-born head of the firm, came to him and admitted financial distress, Floyd was sympathetic. Floyd thereupon hatched a scheme to keep Russell solvent. He began accepting drafts drawn by Russell in anticipation of future work. The contractor, delighted at this magic solution to his troubles, soon beat a path to Floyd's door, asking for more drafts. Early in 1860, Buchanan got wind of Floyd's dealing, though he had no conception of the magnitude of the secretary's paper edifice and ordered him sharply to stop it. Floyd agreed and kept right on turning the crank. Then Goddard Bailey, who was a clerk in the Interior Department, was brought in to keep the scheme going. He was in control of $2.5 in negotiable bonds left in trust by the government for several Indian tribes. Seeking to help out Floyd from a disaster that would turn into a national scandal, he met Russell in the War Department, returned to his office, took 150000 in Indian bonds out of the safe, handed them to Russell to keep it going. He would then hand over the series of weeks as much as 870000 But that may not be the only scandal with John B. Floyd, Buchanan's Secretary of War. Although he openly opposed secession before the election of Abraham Lincoln, he was accused in the press of having sent large stores of government arms to federal arsenals specifically in the South in anticipation of a war. Here's what Grant says in his personal memoir. Floyd, the Secretary of War, scattered the army so that much of it could be captured when hostilities should commence, and distributed the cannon and small arms from northern arsenals throughout the South so as to be on hand when treason wanted them. Indeed, a congressional commission after his resignation in 1861 had found that after 1859, after John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, using that as a as a justification, he bolstered the federal arsenals in some southern states by over 115,000 muskets and rifles. He also ordered heavy ordnance to be shipped to federal forts in Galveston Harbor, Texas, and the new fort on Ship Island, the coast of Mississippi. That fort on Ship Island, while it was being constructed, was attacked by an armog and mob and seized by the secessionist state of Mississippi. Well, he resigns on December 29, 1860, allegedly over the refusal of Buchanan to order Major Robert Anderson to leave Fort Sutner and go to the more precarious location of Fort Moultrie. Floyd is later going to become a major general in the Provisional Army of Virginia for fighting for the Confederacy. So there you have in um, James Buchanan a kind of triangle of things. You have a recession, a domestic crisis that one could almost say is a foreign policy crisis handled badly, and a scandal. Not only that, you have political breaches within his own party. So performance-wise, there's many reasons to conclude that these presidential historians aren't wrong. We discussed earlier that we don't have to think about what James Buchanan thought or how he might view himself or how he might defend himself because he published his memoir, which he thought would set the record straight. And he has a couple of points 
about the crisis that he makes in his own defense. He really becomes one of the first former presidents to really start to work on legacy preservation as a former president. I mean, right from the get-go, he's seeking letters from the Lincoln administration that might help to make his image look better. He's seeking evidence of uh, points that he's going to make in the defense of his legacy. He writes to Edwin Stanton, you know, please, I'm in the crisis of my life and you must help me. Now, Stanton, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't help very much. Uh, and then later, I think Stanton's going to be one of many people who maybe worked with him when he was president who are going to then, you know, once civil war breaks out, Buchanan's legacy is not looking very good and there's no reason to defend it much. So the defense falls upon himself. Still in the book, he uses the third person. He talks about Mr. Buchanan, the president, or sometimes Mr. B. One of his points about his conduct during the secession crisis is that his own general, Winfield Scott, said there wasn't force, only 400 men, five companies only, to garrison the nine fortifications in the southern states. It would have been a profession of weakness to distribute them, not a show of strength. And he says, Mr. B was not in a position to call the militia. Only Congress was. That's his take on it. Our forts, he says, were never conceived for protection in a time of peace. Every great republic, Buchanan says, has been felled to standing armies, from Caesar to Cromwell to Bonaparte. Citizen soldiers converted to militia discipline. He doesn't want a standing army, and people wouldn't tolerate it. That's part of Buchanan's thinking. Remember, it's a pre-Civil War thinking. No, he couldn't pull troops from the West. General Scott said more. Not less troops were actually needed there to protect Utah, Texas, Oregon, Washington, California, Nebraska from Indian degradation. Furthermore, he says, Congress does not act. Congress knew the condition of the army. Um, Benjamin Stanton, this is not Edwin Stanton, this is a congressman, there, his military committee mentioned this, that the condition of the army was terrible and still did not act. Congress from May to December does not act. Another point Buchanan makes is, Mr. Buchanan insisted that revenue be collected in South Carolina in speeches and statements. In fact, look at how my cabinet secretaries, Thomas and Cobb, resigned because I was too strong. Another point, war would be bloody. And now that the war is over, you have seen it. He's looking at the Civil War, the hundreds of thousands of deaths. And I knew it. The seven states of the Confederacy had a territory greater than the original 13, more than five millions of people. To vanquish them were to require an army and an increase of the shedding of kindred blood. Every great republic up to now had fallen because they had, when a military power such as that had been created. And not only would it cost in human terms, but Buchanan says it would cost hundreds of millions. He maintained in his memoirs that he was always against secession. In order to justify secession as a constitutional remedy, it must be on the principle that the federal government is a mere voluntary association of states to be dissolved at pleasure by one of the contracting parties. But he says of this, 
If this be so, the Constitution, Buchanan says, is then a rope of sand. This is an important point to make because if there is any defense out there of Buchanan these days, you might get some of them from the kind of neo-Confederate libertarians like we should have just left people alone and avoided war back then. Um, one of the things to be clear about is that wasn't Buchanan's position. He was actually against secession and very strongly against it. He might have blamed the North more, but he was uh, and, and Northern abolitionists more, but he was against secession and strongly against the idea that you might hear some people saying, well, a bunch of states joined a union and they could leave at their pleasure. No, he's firmly against that. He felt like in his message of December 3rd, 1860, he put the idea of war on South Carolina. That is to say, he set up Lincoln, and he doesn't use that term, but that's what he's implying. In other words, the idea that if you fire on Fort Sumner, um, or fire on, at that point, they weren't in, the troops weren't in Fort Sumner yet, they, they were Fruits, there were troops at Fort Moultrie and some of them in the town of Charleston. If you're firing on federal troops, that's on you. Because he says in his presidential message of December 3rd, 1860, I've ordered forts to act in a defensive manner. If there's an assault, that's up to the assailant. So that's one of the arguments he's making now, you know, in 1866, 1867, that, hey, I'm the one that set up that premise that we're on the defensive. You attack us, you started the war that ended up helping Lincoln in his case. He brings up his letter to commissioners, December 13th, and he brings up that some letters from the South Carolina legislature sent to the president were of such a strong nature that he really refused to accept them. So it wasn't like he was just kowtowing to them, he was standing up. Another point he makes, he was betrayed by his war secretary, John B. Floyd. Another point he makes, Republicans were at the time running about division, encouraging division. Democrats, even at the risk of losing an election, were trying to preserve the Union. That's his point. Another point he makes, the idea of secession was invented in the North. Well, he's going to refer back to the Hartford Convention here. I had no doubt in 1808 and 1809, and have no doubt at this time, that the key of all the great movements of these leaders of the Federal Party in New England from the time forward till its final catastrophe in the Hartford Convention was the establishment of a separate convention, and in the case of civil war, the aid of Great Britain to effect that purpose would be assuredly resorted to and would be indispensably necessary to the design. This, he says, John Quincy Adams, former President of the United States, told to Thomas Jefferson. He cites a speech by Josiah Quincy, different guy, Josiah Quincy in 1811, a representative of Massachusetts, that when Louisiana is to be accepted as a new state to the United States with equal footing, if that's to happen, then there should be a provision enabling other states to separate if they don't want it. So he's saying these ideas came from the North. Another point he makes, Buchanan, the things that you wanted me to do are not what Lincoln does. When Lincoln arrives in office, he's proceeding the same as me. He says, during and he cites his first inaugural address, You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. 
You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. Buchanan says that's Lincoln. That's exactly what I was doing. Still another point. He separates three distinct groups, that there is the deep cotton states that are causing the trouble. Then there are border states that probably want no conflict. And then there are upper southern states that are probably going to be key to resolving the conflict. And that's his job, that that he didn't want to overreact to something done by the deep cotton states that would help to justify the others going for rebellion. During his entire presidency, we must remember, Virginia was not in a state of secession. Says Congress didn't act either. On the 10th of January, a bill was made to allow the president to call forth the militia. And from January 10th to January 31st, while this whole matter is being debated, they defended it. It was withdrawn after 19 more days, never acted on. Then he cited the peace convention. He said that he had met with former President John Tyler. and The peace committee was meeting. Why would he take an action that would disrupt these events? Virginia had abstained from any acts calculated to produce a collision of arms. And then representatives of Virginia had asked him to abstain from any acts calculated to produce a collision of arms. Buchanan actually says that he cannot be a party to any kind of agreement as that, per his oath, but he asked Congress. The noble, patriotic effort, he said in his memoir, met no favor from Congress. The peace convention was not considered or even entered into the record of Congress. Here's how I saw the situation, according to a reading from his memoir. There was South Carolina, which had been the avowed and persistent advocate of disunion for more than a quarter of a century. She had already called a convention for the purpose of seceding from the Union. Her leading secessionists were ever on the alert to seize upon any action of the federal government, which they might wrest to the purpose of alienating the other slaveholding states from their attachment to the Union. The second class was composed of the six other cotton states. The people of these, although highly excited against the abolitionists, were still unwilling to leave the Union. They would have been content notwithstanding the efforts of secessionist demagogues with a simple recognition of their adjudged rights to take slaves into the territories and hold them there like other property until a territorial convention assembled to frame a state constitution should decide the question. And three, the third class consisted of the border slaveholding states with Virginia at the head. A large majority of their people, although believing in the right of peaceful secession, had resisted all of the efforts of the extreme men in their midst and were still devoted of the Union. The result of the election held in Virginia February 4th confirmed that to be the case. Another point he makes. Leading Republicans everywhere scornfully exclaimed, let them go. We can do better without them. Let the loot union slide and other language of the same import. In addition to all these considerations, the persistent refusal of Congress from the first till the very last hour of the session of 1860 to 1861 to take a single step in preparing for armed resistance to the execution of the laws served to confirm the cotton states in the opinion that they might depart in peace. The people of the cotton states, unfortunately for themselves, were also infatuated with the belief until the very last moment that in the case they 
should secede, they would be sustained by a large portion, if not the whole, Democratic Party of the North. They vainly imagined that this party, which had maintained their constitutional rights whilst they remained in the Union, would sustain them in rebellion after they had gone out of it. In this delusion, they were also greatly encouraged by sympathy and report and support from the influential and widely circulated anti-Republican journals in the North, and especially in the city of New York. It was in vain, therefore, that the late president, he's referring to himself, Mr. B., warned them, as he often did, against this delusion. It was in vain that he assured them that the first cannon fired against either Fort Moultrie or Fort Sumner would arouse the indignant spirit of the North, would heal all political divisions amongst the Northern people, and would unite them as one man in support of a war rendered inevitable by such an act of rebellion. So writes James Buchanan. And uh, so it is that this quiet, ill-regarded figure in history, a guy with the funny little floof on the top of his head, right, black and white picture, speaks. And I think it's important that we contextualize history and politics and hear from those voices. Now, in hearing Mr. B's views, do we agree with them anymore? I suspect for the large majority of you, no, you will not. For myself, no, I, I... I do not. I think he blames entirely too much. I think that the example, one of the things that Edwin Stanton uh, says to him is he he needs to use the example of Jackson, use the threat or the actual force of the United States in this crisis, and he does not. And inaction will always be seen, I think, as a failure of uh, presence. Here's an article from Clifford Thighs in ResearchGate in... um, in the Journal of Academic Questions from March 2014. Since Arthur Schlesinger's 1948 survey, Historians Rate U.S. Presidents, published in Life magazine, scholars, mostly historians, have been rating the presidents. In this first survey, the instant assessment of scholars was that Franklin D. Roosevelt was worthy of joining the pantheon of great presidents, following only Abraham Lincoln, and George Washington in greatness. Contrarian-wise, in a survey immediately following Ronald Reagan's presidency, the instant assessment was that Reagan was mediocre. As to why Reagan was re-elected in a landslide and succeeded by a candidate of his party, well, as one survey put it, he ranked very high in luck. Of course, every scholarly ranking involves the implicit values of the rankers. To what extent, for example, do scholars value economic performance when rating presidents? The same kind of questions can be asked of presidential elections and surveys of the general population. To what extent do voters value economic performance when considering a sitting president for re-election or when considering the nominee of the president's party when he's not running for office? One of the things Thais shows is how the rankings of presidents differed even in Schlesinger's three different polls. Well, actually, the first two were by Arthur Schlesinger, and the last in 1996 was conducted by his son, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. So in all the polls, Lincoln comes up first. This seems to be something that uh, is, you know, fairly consistent. And by the way, that's something that's not going to help James Buchanan very much, that the guy after you is coming up first. 
And Washington comes up second in the 1948 poll and the 1962 poll. And in the 1996 poll by Schlesinger Jr., it's a tie. Washington is tied with Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt is third in both 1948 and 1962. Grant is 28 in 1948. He's down to 30 in 1962, and he's down to 36 in 1996. In Schlesinger's 1948 survey of a small, carefully chosen panel of historians, panelists were asked to simply describe presidents as great, near great, average, below average, or failure. Schlesinger specifically asked participants to consider performance as president only, not personality. These responses were then coded as 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, numerical scores averaged, and the average is ranked, giving a complete ranking of presidents from Washington to Franklin Roosevelt at that time, except for William Henry Harrison and James Garfield, who were exempted from the survey, given the shortness of their presidential terms. Some subsequent surveys have followed the simple method developed by Schlesinger, while others have gotten more complicated. Two types can be distinguished. The first, as with Schlesinger's 1948 survey, leaves the overall assessment to the scholar. The second queries scholars about certain aspects of presidents and forms an overall assessment by summing or averaging the assessment of these aspects. This type of survey imposes a weighting scheme onto detailed assessments that may differ from the weighting scheme the scholars themselves would choose. So, here's an example. A 1982 Chicago Tribune survey asked scholars to rate presidents in five categories, leadership, accomplishments, political skill, appointments, and character, in addition to asking for an overall rating. In this, Franklin Roosevelt ranked second, according to the average of the scores in the five categories, but he ranked third in the overall assessment. On the other end of the spectrum, Richard Nixon ranked fourth from the bottom, according to the average of the scores in the five categories, but he ranked second worst in the overall assessment. In the 2002 Siena Research Institute survey, the published ranking based on 20 underlying categories now placed Nixon as somewhat less than average. But an examination of the underlying categories reveals that he ranked near the bottom in the Your Present Overall View category which would have put him in the bottom in a Schlesinger-type ranking. In the underlying categories, Nixon's scores range from relatively high in foreign policy accomplishments to the lowest in integrity. In forming an overall assessment, scholars clearly put more weight on integrity than the formula in the Siena survey allowed. So that's one of the challenges that uh, Thies is describing in this article with these presidential rankings that so you can try to, to reach some of the dimensions by breaking things into categories, and then you're actually losing that overall assessment of the person as president. So, you know, maybe it's maybe there is no way to rank, you know, is kind of the conclusion you get from there. Because if you're breaking too much in categories, then Nixon becomes an average president. Now, one of the things that Thies does is, is interesting is he does a regression analysis of 434 rankings of presidents by scholars in 12 surveys relative to regressions of the popular votes and electoral college votes received by the candidate of the incumbent party relative to the performance measures of the prior term. So how do voters think about the president versus how scholars are assessing them? The results indicate that scholars are not impressed by presidents associated with a vibrant economy. Indeed, the coefficient on GDP growth is wrong-signed and significant. In contrast, 
GDP growth is positive and significant in both the popular and electoral college vote regressions. With regard to the change in the federal non-defense expenditure, similar results are obtained in all three regressions, although significance varies. In one of only two instances in which conservative scholars appear to distinguish themselves from their fellow predominantly liberal colleagues, they oppose increasing the size of government relative to other scholars. With regard to war, scholars appear to love wars, and liberal scholars appear to love wars without discrimination. Conservative scholars show some discrimination in their taste for war, liking good wars a bit more, bad wars a bit less. In contrast, the people appear to dislike bad wars and react to bad wars differently than they react to good wars, although these findings fail to meet an acceptable level of significance. With regard to scandals, scholars strongly penalize presidents who become associated with scandals. By contrast, the people do not appear to punish candidates of parties whose sitting presidents were associated with scandals. It seems fair to say that the concerns of the people are ordinary and involve going about the business of life and not getting swept up in the affairs of state, whether this involves war-making, sexual intrigue, or petty corruption. By contrast, scholars seem fixated on drama. So that's um, Charles Thies and his opinion. Here's uh, Curtis author Almond writing in 1964 in the Midwest Journal of Political Science. With almost a monotonous regularity, there appear books on the presidency which try to determine those of our leaders who have been great, near great, average, and poor. Superficially neat categorizations are found for each of the presidents. Invariably, elaborate descriptive material is included to buttress the opinion and prejudices of the authors. Perhaps nowhere in the literature of politics is so much emphasis given to descriptive rather than analytical content. What conceivable relevancy is there in comparing presidents on the basis of their weakness and strength, each operated within a wholly different totality, and each with a unique political environment? Several years ago, Harold Lasky contended that our great leaders somehow came to the front in great times. Regrettably, his elucidating exposition in the requisite behavior of the great or strong president was not matched by a thoroughgoing discussion of the multiplicity of factors causing weak presidents to appear. While FDR's personality and political acumen were important in winning congressional assent to the program of the 100 days, the basic fact of economic stagnation and human suffering provided impetus for the governmental action that was required. More than a century ago, Lincoln was the beneficiary of a developing crisis, which enabled him to resort to actions that were constitutionally questionable at best. And finally, the appropriate terms to characterize presidents are not strong and weak. Rather, what the presidency most requires is adaptability, a capacity to meet changes by maintaining a policy equilibrium between power and ideological centers, both within and without our society. 1964. And this from a, a 2012 journal of political science and politics, PS, political science and politics. An economic ranking of the U.S. presidents, 1789 to 2009, a data-based approach by Mark Zachary Taylor. He considers a number of factors, inflation, GDP, unemployment, wealth, uh, national wealth, etc., FDR's number one, Harding's number two, and he's tied with Hayes and McKinley. Buchanan is still down there in 33, and last is Van Buren at 39, tied with Hoover. Instead of putting Washington at one, brings Washington down to five, tied with Fillmore, and has Truman at seven with John Adams. 
Jefferson at 16 instead of the usual four or five he is in most scholarly rankings. And this from the Contemporary Presidency Rating the President's a Tracking Study, Douglas Lundstrom and Thomas O'Kelly in 2003 in Presidential Studies Quarterly. They note something else that hasn't been picked up on, that former presidents can affect their ratings by acting as a former president. It seems arguable, for instance, that the post-presidential conduct of Nixon and Carter did alter, in a positive fashion, the way that experts viewed their terms in office. Ford's more conventional departure, on the other hand, seems to have dimmed whatever slight luster his presidency once had. When is a president's place in history final or nearly so? seems probable that the truly great American presidents have secured their places almost from the end of their presidencies. Light Horse Harry Lee was Washington's contemporary and said, He was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. At Lincoln's deathbed, Edwin Stanton said, Now he belongs to the ages. The outpouring of grief at the death of Franklin Roosevelt remains awesome. Even in old newsreels, and radio tapes. The same might be said for the bottom-ranked presidents, who mourned or even noticed the end of the Buchanan administration. Who, other than Hawthorne, cared for Pierce? Our survey would seem to support this contention. The reordering of the worst presidential shifts, no one, by more than three places. The Giants and the Pygmies will we submit rarely very significantly, no matter how many polls or tracking studies are done. Some, like Eisenhower, need time and objectivity to join with interpretation before we see beneath the veneer of the true forms of their presidential style and their achievements. It took nearly 40 years for Eisenhower to move from Arthur Schlesinger's 1962 ranking into the top 10 American presidents. It is probably safe to say that he and Harry Truman, seventh in all four of our surveys, have now reached their basic quasi-permanent ranking. After all, a full generation and more has passed since they left the White House. It seems to us that with the usual caveats, the giants are virtually immediately recognizable. So too are the failures. I hope you enjoyed this little look at uh, Mr. Buchanan's administration, his own views on the topic, in consider which becomes important in consideration of all of these presidential rankings that you hear about to hear from the last on most of the lists. Thanks for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. One of the things I've done is I've sort of removed the um, premium podcast from there as a choice, but you can donate. So please consider donating at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.